I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and this is Unorthodox, the podcast from Tablet Magazine. This week, something a little different. Yom Kippur is coming up soon. That's the holiday when Jews fast to atone for our sins. But there's another somewhat lesser-known ritual at Yom Kippur time. In the days leading up to the holiday, Jews are supposed to make amends to all the people we've wronged in the previous year. In other words, we're supposed to go around to anyone we might have hurt and say, basically, I'm sorry. And then those people are kind of required to forgive us. See, in Judaism, God can only forgive sins against God, like eating non-kosher food or working on the Sabbath or masturbation. No good, very bad, terrible things like that. But for sins you've committed against fellow human beings, you have to ask that person for forgiveness. God doesn't enter into it. So Jews are supposed to be masters of the art of apology. So to help our fellow Jews and ourselves and anyone else who's listening, think about how to apologize. We're doing this special episode. We're going to hear a couple stories of Jews talking about apologies they have or haven't given, as well as one story about somebody who couldn't bring herself to forgive her apologizer. And I'll be discussing these stories with tablet writer Marjorie Ingall. Hi, Marjorie. Hey. Marjorie, you write Sorry Watch, a blog about how to say you're sorry. What is Sorry Watch? Sorry Watch is uh, a look at different kinds of apologies, both in the news and the media, but also in history, in literature, um, in pop culture, uh, to look at both good and bad apologies and say what makes them so. When did you start the blog? What was the idea, the impetus behind it? Uh, Well, actually, I do the blog with my friend Susan McCarthy, who's also a writer, and she's in San Francisco. And we've both written a lot about apology. Uh, She's written about it for Salon, and I've written about it for both the Forward and Tablet. And uh, we both realized that in our own lives, it's really hard to apologize, and it's really hard to apologize well. And we thought it would be interesting to do a blog about how to apologize well. Are there any really good ones that you've covered on Sorry Watch in your days running the blog? Yes. Um, One is the writer Chuck Klosterman, who um, got an email from a mother of a child with disabilities who took him to task for using the word retard in books he'd written years and years earlier, at least a decade earlier. And he waited a couple of days and he emailed her back. And it was pretty much the perfect apology because he owned it. He said, you're right. I was wrong. Um, He named what he did wrong, which is, you know, I use this word insensitively and it's a bad word. And uh, he said, please share this with your readers. So he made it public and private. And he offered to donate $25,000 to the charity of her choice. And it was pretty much the perfect. He didn't make excuses. I mean, even though he had written it when he was much younger, he was he, he said in the apology, I was still an adult when I wrote that. Marjorie, you grew up pretty religiously Jewish. Your mom's a my mom is a professor of Jewish education, and I grew up in a conservative Jewish home. Right. What does the Jewish tradition say about how to apologize? There's a lot about repenting in front of God, and there's not that much about talking to your fellow human beings. And I think what you and I are really interested in is what we do with each other and to people like, you know, the way Chuck did, um, to what, what, what do we say to people we've wronged? And Maimonides has written, he's the, hees the big man on apology in right. Jewish tradition. 12th century sage. He's the big man on everything. Yes, much, right? pretty much. <laughs> Philosopher, physician, right. chicken soup advocate. Right. Um, so he says lots of stuff about you have to, if, you, if somebody doesn't forgive you when you apologize to them, you have to go back three times, um, which I think is good because a lot of times 
our tendency is to be like, I tried and walk away. And he doesn't let you off the hook with that. Um, he also talks about the importance of making sure you don't recommit the sin. Um, it's not enough to be like, sorry, and, uh, you know, and you know it's going to happen again, as with so many celebrity debacles. He talks about the saying you're sorry without ensuring that you're not going to, you know, do it again is like going into a mikvah, a ritual bath, while holding a dead lizard. <laughs> Which and... is always one of the classic <laughs> images of of Jewish education, right? Is like <laughs> the, the hypocrisy is like going into a, a ritual bath to purify yourself while holding a dead lizard. Exactly. And Susan, my co-blogger, and I are constantly saying to each other, "Drop the lizard." <laughs> <laughs> and then he also says that if you've been apologized to, you're supposed to. Forgive the person. Yeah. You are not supposed to. You are just as in the wrong if you are just going to cling to your resentment. It's the equivalent of the uh, that Buddhist saying about, um, you know, holding a rock, thinking you want to throw it at somebody else. You know, holding a hot rock is like burning your own hand. Um, But on SorryWatch.com, you've come up with your own sort of updated, more yes. modernized sort of so, test for like, what, yes. what does a good apology look like? So tell us about that okay. that set of rules for what a good apology so, looks like. After doing this blog for almost three years, um, our sort of template for a perfect apology comes from both Maimonides and from a psychiatrist named Aaron Lazar, who wrote a book called On Apology. And uh, it really has five steps. First is say you're sorry. Second is say the thing that you're sorry for which is a thing that a lot of people say, I'm sorry about what happened. I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. No, say what you did. Um, Then say you understand the import of what you did. You know, I understand that, you know, you have to get the rug dry cleaned. I understand that I embarrassed you in front of all of our coworkers. Um, Make amends. If that means like Chuck Klosterman, you make a donation to a charity in the person's name, whether it means you own the mistake in front of, you know, if you let if you threw somebody under the bus, unthrow them, pull them out from under the bus and take responsibility. And then what steps are you going to take to make sure it doesn't happen again? You know, have you put systems in place so you don't tweet a stupid thing from your work account again? Uh, Will you talk to your kid about the horrible thing that they said and make sure that they won't say it again? That's the five steps. Do you feel like you practice those in your own life? You know, I have I have more sympathy now than when I started for people who apologize badly because I see how hard it is in my own life. And I see the first thing, you know, it's a, it's a cognitive dissonance thing. You want to think that you're not that person. So you do pretty much anything you can possibly do to tell yourself you're not that person. So you try to... You know, foist it off on the circumstances. You try to foist it off on the other person. Uh, you make it because you were tired. You make it because the other person provoked you. And I feel that when I apologize. But I really, I try to own it. But it's not easy. Let's listen to a story, uh, one that I told. I recorded this about 10 years ago at a storytelling event at the Quinnipiac Club in New Haven, Connecticut. I don't love this story. Uh, it makes me look bad. And it's very hard for me to think about um, but it's one that I continue to live with in part because, well, you'll, you'll see how it ends or doesn't. So let's have a listen. Thank you. Um, I'm certain, I am certain that there were other 10-year-old boys in Springfield, Massachusetts in 1984 who were obsessed with the novels of Judy Bloom. But... I'm sure I'm the only one who turned out heterosexual. (laughs) And I'm also sure that I'm the only one 
who was led by one of those novels down the path to evil. The novel, familiar to those of you between the ages of 18 and 45, I would guess, was Then Again, Maybe I Won't, which some of you know as her guy novel. No menstruation, no chance of we must increase our bust, but merely many scenes of scoping out girls with binoculars, holding up magazines with just one hand, and, and most important to this story tonight, making crank phone calls. The story, and, and many of you will know this, is that Tony Miglione's father hits it rich by inventing some sort of new, new, new improved spark plug or something. They move from Brooklyn or some inner ring of Long Island farther out to where things are a little bit more hoity-toity. And, while the, and once there, he falls under the spell of his neighbor Joel, who is to the manor born, and who has a very, very beautiful sister, the one whom he looks at with the binoculars. And what Joel does on evenings when there's nothing else to do is he makes crank phone calls. He takes out the phone and he dials up numbers and then he says relatively immature things and slams the phone down. <laughs> you must have been one of my victims. And Tony thinks this is just spectacular and he starts doing it. Well, as a 10-year-old boy myself, who was not a particularly sporting lad, uh, to put it mildly, um, and therefore had a, what's known in Massachusetts as a friend deficiency, um, I was home a lot with nothing but my own overactive imagination and, um, and the telephone as the other boys were out playing baseball on the terrace. And I thought that this thing that Tony and Joel did and then again, maybe I won't, was impossibly clever. I thought, that's so interesting. How did they ever think about that? Using the phone and dialing it and, and then saying things and hanging up? Stunning. So... Being the exceptionally clever lad that I was, I also realized after making the first couple of these phone calls by picking phone numbers out of the white pages that if, in fact, all you wanted to do was find someone in Springfield, you just had to dial 739 and then guess at the last four digits because everyone in Springfield, at least before the advent of cellular phones and things like that, was 739. So this was, this was like a gold mine. I, I now had entertainment for every time that my parents and siblings weren't in the house. So I would do this. My, my favorite... My favorite trick was um, calling someone up and saying, hi, it's John. You're on Channel 3 News right now. Go turn on the TV. And then hanging up. <laughs> so this was endlessly fun. I mean, except, except it wasn't endlessly fun because like so many other pleasurable things in life, as you do something more and more, it loses its initial thrill and you have to up the ante. You have to push the envelope, make it a little more exciting. So now let me set the scene. Remember, this is 1984, which was the age of the satanic ritual abuse scares, as well as the age of kidnapped children, John Walsh on television talking about, what was his name, Adam, right, was his son, um, the children on the milk cartons, and we were bombarded at the New North Community School, my elementary school, with the message that if anyone ever touched you inappropriately, you should call this number. And we knew the number. And if you forgot the number, it was conveniently located on the spine of the phone book. 
the same spine that is now in every city, New Haven included, the advertising spot of choice for personal injury law firms. <laughs> so, so I home one night and feeling that somehow the normal old prank phone calls just didn't, didn't get my juices flowing anymore, I dialed that number, which was probably something like 739-HELP, and said, Hi, my name is Nicole Johnson. <laughs> Being the kind of boy I was, I had a voice that could pass for a girl's. And Nicole Johnson, not her real name, was, in fact, the name of a person who went to my elementary school. I gave the actual name of someone who went to my elementary school. And I said, when this voice answered, tell me, dear, what's your problem? And it was that perfect social worker voice. I know that you all know it. She said, tell me, dear, what's your problem? And I said, well, my daddy molests me. And then she said, tell me more. And I told her a little bit more. And then eventually I realized I was losing control of the story, that my, my lies weren't coming as quickly. And so I just sort of hung up in a panic. And then I did not think about it 10 minutes later. I'm sure I was watching, you know, Who's the Boss or Growing Pains or something. And I honestly didn't think anything of it. I mean, making these kinds of phone calls, I sort of knew that your parents, you shouldn't tell your parents, but I thought it was a crime on the order of, you know, reading in bed with a flashlight after it was supposed to be lights out. I knew that you weren't supposed to do it. You weren't supposed to sneak that extra cookie, but it wasn't that bit. You didn't spend any time feeling guilty about it, right? And I didn't think about it again until two weeks later when sitting there in Mr. Luce's class his homeroom at the New North Community School, I saw Dr. Jimenez, the assistant principal, come to the, sort of come in the door, beckon Mr. Luce. We knew this wasn't good because the assistant principal's the disciplinarian, right? And then Mr. Luce said, Mark, could you go with Dr. Jimenez? Now, I knew that I hadn't cheated on a test because I was a really good kid. In fact, I was a deeply sensitive kid, the kind of kid who, the first time I ever went fishing, as soon as I caught a fish and saw it and threw it on the deck and then saw it floundering around, suffocating to death, I, I started crying and I told my dad, you have to throw it back, you have to throw it back. I, I cried when I saw old documentaries about the civil rights movement and I saw water hoses being turned on, on women and children. I mean, I was a very sensitive kid and I was a good kid and I could not imagine why I was being yanked out of class. I just, as far as I knew, I had a clean record in life. Down in Dr. Jimenez's office were my parents, who looked as thunderstruck as can be. My mother clearly had been crying. My father seemed at a loss for words. They asked me to come with them. On the way home, we stopped at Wendy's, where I got a single cheeseburger ketchup lettuce, my standard order to this day. <laughs> and... As we pulled out, I said to my parents, what's wrong? Did someone die? Because that was the only possible reason I could come up with that I would have been yanked out of class. And the only word my parents would say to me on the way home was no. They wanted me to know no one had died. But other than that, they would not tell me what was wrong until we got home. And my mother, after we got in the house and sat down on the old sofa, my mother started to say something and then just burst into tears and ran out of the room, leaving my father to play the heavy 
So it's not a role that comes naturally to my father, being an Oppenheimer um, like me. He's, he's a soft touch. And I could tell he wasn't enjoying this, and he had never had to do this before. I was his first son of what would be four children, and I had never done anything wrong. But finally, he sort of got down at my level and looked me in the eye, and he said, your mother got a visit today from the police who said that apparently someone from this general area, and I don't know if they had traced the phone call or what. To this day, I couldn't tell you how they knew. Someone from this general area called a child abuse hotline, pretended to be the name of some poor girl, and then the police went and investigated her father for molesting her. And they think that that call that got this family investigated a mile away came from this house. Did it. And I said, as waves of knowledge all of a sudden rushed over me that I had done something wrong, I said, yes, it did. And he said, well, listen. He said, they wanted me to bring you downtown myself for fingerprinting and to book you and to put you in the cell until you were released for arraignment. My father was a lawyer, so he knew these terms and I knew these terms from the dinner table. He said, but I'm not going to bring you downtown right now. I'm going to go myself and I'm going to try to persuade them to give you a break. And he left. My father, small town lawyer, knew the people around. He was going to go off to get them to cut me a break. So for two hours, I sat on the sofa, sweating, clasping my hands, afraid to even leave the room for fear that I would bump into my mother. And then he came back. And he looked at me and he said, well, they're not going to prosecute. They said they'd let you off with a warning this time. But I want you to know, he said to me, he said, but I want you to know that if you were a little black kid from the North End, they'd be throwing you in prison. And this is the one time I'm going to save your ass. And he did. And I've never gotten in trouble since. But you know, I sometimes wonder what became of that family that I turned into the hotline, the real family that got investigated by the police who showed up at their house and investigated this father and said, well, we had a call from your daughter that you've been molesting her. Now, obviously, they eventually figured out that she didn't make the call because they figured out that I did. But how long before they figured it out? A week? Two weeks? And what must life have been like for that family during that week or two weeks? And was life ever really the same again after that week or two weeks? And when in college I started fasting on Yom Kippur, I sometimes began to think about that family, the Johnsons. Because one of the things you're supposed to do in addition to fasting and atoning for your sins is you're supposed to go and apologize to people you've done things wrong to. And these days it pretty much takes the form of saying to coworkers, I'm sorry I yelled at you. you know, saying to my mom, I'm sorry that I you know, didn't think better of you that time during that conversation. But one person I've never called is this girl. And I'm not sure that I will. So I pay that price every year around the days of awe 
But I also try to remember that our family must have paid a much greater price still. So, thanks. All right, Marjorie. Should I do anything now? What should I do? Um, what you said to me when you sent me the story to listen to before we recorded this was, uh, I know you think I'm awesome and now you're going to hate me. And <laughs> I was really, I was shocked by the story. It's bad, Mark. But My wife said, are you sure you want this out there? And I said, well, I, I do. I commend you for putting it out there. Um, you know, the th- one of the things that struck me that you said at the end of the piece was, um, I have Something like, I have to live with the consequences of what I've done, but her family has to live with much more. And I think, you know, on the one hand, it's a, it's a, it's a, a lovely ending to the piece, but it's also a danger in apologizing to say... You know, in, in, to, oh, look, I'm suffering. I'm yes, suffering. Yeah. Like, yes. Look, why apologize? I'm, I... And that's in every celebrity apology that we make fun of is like, um, I am paying the price is what they always say. Um, or, you so know, I think that for many years I didn't apologize because I thought, I could still be in trouble with the law. I thought maybe... I, I also wondered about that in the story, actually. Is, weren't you a kid? I was a kid, but kids can kids can get hauled in front of the court for stuff. I mean, probably they don't get sent away forever, but I mean, I could have been... Sent to juvie or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it was really yeah. bad. And of course, I don't know how it panned out. Like, I don't know if, in fact, they talked to her parents for two minutes and thought this was a crank phone call, like, and she never knew about it. So, I mean, now this may sound like special pleading, like I'm trying to let myself off the hook, but... <laughs> Is there an argument that either A, uh, she never knew about this and it would be kind of weird, even vaguely traumatic to have this random stranger get in touch with her about something that happened when she was nine or 10? Or B, what if it was horribly traumatic and it finally has healed over and I'm ripping the Band-Aid off? Like is I don't believe in ripping the Band-Aid off because it's the same thing as like when people don't talk to you about your dead family member because they're worried that they're going to hurt your feelings. You still know your family member died. And it's not. In fact, you want to hear the stories that make about your your dead family member and sort of saying nothing is the worst thing to do. Um, I think it it is possible that she didn't know. Um, But I do think you can go to her and say, look, this is part of my tradition. And this is something that I have sat with for 20, 30 years, 30 years. And um, I I would. I did a terrible thing, and I want to talk to you about it. And don't make her, don't put her on the spot. I know Maimonides says the person has to forgive you, but she might not know that. And you are not entitled, you are responsible for apologizing. You are not entitled to be forgiven. Okay. Our next story comes from Shira Telushkin. Shira is a journalist, and she's now a first-year student at Harvard Divinity School. Let's take a listen. I was a sophomore in college, and I was going through the people in my life. I remember, like, sitting on my uh, dorm room bed, a twin bed, obviously, noting every person with whom I had any unresolved tension or lingering resentment or even just unspoken gratitude. I was making my annual Yom Kippur list. Yom Kippur, this 
awesome day when we're supposed to go out and make amends with everyone we have wronged or everyone who has wronged us. This year, at the top of my list was Avner. This was a guy I hadn't spoken to in over a year, since a disastrous weekend the summer before I started college. That was the weekend that had finally ended our complicated, years-long, on-again, off-again relationship. So when I was emailing him now, I wasn't even sure if he would respond. But Yom Kippur was looming. Want to or not, tradition demanded I try and reach out. I was always the kid who took Yom Kippur very seriously. Each fall, I would make these intense lists, and then I would call and email my way down, apologizing for everything from invitations I ignored or snappy emails I thought I had sent. I saw Yom Kippur as this way out of the messiness of human relationships. It didn't really matter what you did. You call, you apologize, and then, upon successful completion of the dance, the incident would be resolved. So when I emailed Avner, I was prepared. I had played this game before. Sure, the stakes were a little different. I mean, he had done me some serious wrong. A year earlier, after those years of knowing each other, he just vanished on me. And then, a month later, after ignoring all of my calls and texts and Facebook messages and emails, he, out of the blue, sent me an invitation to his wedding. I was 19. I was confused and hurt and definitely pretty devastated. But that was all in the past. I was 20 now, and I was ready to make amends. So I sent him a short email. I apologized for my role in our failed relationship, and I asked him to ask me for forgiveness too. I pressed send, and then I waited for the ritual to play out. To his credit, his response came a day later. He apologized, both for what he had done and for not apologizing sooner. He absolved me of any wrongdoing, and he asked for forgiveness just as I had requested. Now, all I needed to do was accept his apology, and the ritual would be complete. Except, I just couldn't do it. Staring at my laptop, my fingers literally hovering over the keyboard, the words, I forgive you, just wouldn't come. I didn't forgive him. What he had done still hurt. It still shaped the reserved way I approached my relationships in college. It still came back to me when I thought of him. His actions were not past. They were still hurting me. And I wasn't ready to free him from what he had done. But I also didn't want him to know how hurt I was. I didn't want him to know that after all these years, he still had that power over me. What was I going to do? I mean, I had approached him. I had to say something. So I left my room and I wandered around campus for a few hours, considering my next move. For all of these years, I had looked at forgiveness as a final step in a very specific process. It was the end of the road. But I don't know. Maybe it's just a first step. Maybe granting forgiveness does not have to signal an inner emotional truth. Maybe forgiveness can be a placeholder, a public statement, something that's more about where you are heading than a reflection of where you are at. It's an ideal, like all of our Yom Kippur promises, a hope for the new year.
I returned to my dorm room feeling enlightened, but definitely still too bitter to let him off the hook. So I told him I understood. And once you understand, I wrote, how can you not forgive? He wrote back something gentle and beautiful. And that was it. I never responded. Just last week, I was making my new lists for the new year. I was sitting on my bed, listening to Lena Del Rey's cover of Leonard Cohen's song, Chelsea Hotel Number no. 2. It's this beautiful song, an ode to Janis Joplin, though Cohen later regretted that he ever acknowledged that. The song opens, I remember you well, from the Chelsea Hotel. He talks about their one intense night together before he concludes, that's all, I don't even think of you that often. That, I realized, is one litmus test of true forgiveness. Avner was no longer part of my life. I no longer worried about bumping into him on the street. If a friend mentioned his name, my body no longer tensed up. I was finally over it. I do remember him well, of course, from those blurry, weird days of being a teenager and trying to figure out how the world works. But that's all. I don't even think of him that often. Marjorie Ingle, forgiveness. Shira had trouble forgiving her ex. What if someone comes to us in the next couple weeks before Yom Kippur and wants to make amends and apologizes, and we just don't honestly feel forgiving? Do, do, do we lie? Do we fake it? No. Um, you know, one word that we always make fun of at um, Sorry Watch is regret. I regret the situation. I regret my role in what happened. Um, regret is about your feelings. Apologizing is about the other person's feelings. And forgiveness is about, you know, it's, it is it is internal, but it's also, a, it's really a gift to the other person. And I don't think you have to give that gift. I think you can, if the person is approaching you, you know, with a kind heart and a full spirit, you can say, thank you for saying that. I appreciate you coming to me. But I don't think you, I, you know, I'm sorry, Maimonides, but I don't think, I don't think you owe someone forgiveness. You know, I, I feel like one nice thing about Judaism is that, you know, I remember when I was little and my, and Jimmy Carter said the thing about, you know, sinning in his heart. He lusted, lusted in his heart. Lusted in his heart. Yeah. And my mom was like, you know, in, in, in our tradition, you know, it's, about, it's more about what you do than what you feel. And I'm okay with feeling angry at someone as long as you don't, you know, act like a jerk to them. Which, of course, brings us to kids. Of you course. Have, you have kids. I have kids. <laughs> I bet we both make them apologize sometimes. We do. And there are people who say that you should not make your child apologize. And I say to those, those people, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so why do we make our kids who will look us right in the eye and say, but I don't feel sorry. Why should I have to say it? What's our answer to them? They may not feel like clearing the table. They may not feel like learning to write. And you put your <laughs> hand on top of their hand and you teach them how to form letters. Um, is, is, is that how it goes in the Ingle household? <laughs> yes. And then we beat them when Maxie, they're left-handed. <laughs> Maxie, you will write. Yes. No, you have to write a thank you note. You have to write a thank you note. And I don't care if you don't feel like it. And I think... I understand why people say you don't teach a kid to lie by saying they're sorry when they're not. But I think when your kids are little, you're also teaching them what the rules of civilized society are. And that means look what you did. Look at the impact of what you did. Look at your friend crying because you bit them really hard. And then you say, um, and I don't care. When, you're, when they're really little, I think you make them say they're sorry. Sorry. 
This is Unorthodox, the podcast from Tablet Magazine. You're listening to a special pre-Yom Kippur episode in which we talk about the art of apology, the Jewish art of apology. Esther Werdiger is the art director of Tablet, and she joins us to talk a little bit about her childhood. Hi, Esther. Hi, Mark. So you grew up in an Orthodox community in Australia, right? Yes. Yes. And like, what was the attitude toward Yom Kippur apologies during your childhood? Well... It was all talked about a lot, you know, and I think when you're little, it's sort of difficult to connect to the more like esoteric aspects of the holiday. So you get stuck on those details like I got to apologize to everybody. And we all knew they would teach us all like the Rambam stuff that you guys were talking about earlier. Wait, Rambam, for those who don't know, is that's Maimonides. He's the, the 12th century rabbi who said how to apologize. Right. So Marjorie mentioned, you know, you can ask someone three times, like things like that. So we would all run up to each other in the playground and would be like, do you forgive me? Do you forgive me? Do you forgive me? And it was all just very empty because you don't real. I mean, when you're a kid, you just don't have any way to understand like what your responsibilities are as a human being or how to say sorry or, you know, you just, you just don't get it yet. So there's a lot of talking about it, but it does take a couple of years, I feel like, to really sink in. Okay, so what's one of the most memorable apologies you ever offered or didn't in your Australian childhood? Well, it's interesting you ask this because, like a lot of creative people, I'm obsessed with my childhood to the point that I married a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because I feel like it's, I don't know, it's fodder for everything. But my childhood, I mean, I'm also a person who just experiences shame very deeply. And I still kind of... I'm obsessed with certain childhood events, but one story I wanted to tell took place when I was in grade one. So I was six and I remember it was uh, at Beth Rivka Ladies College. <laughs> Should I not mention the school? No, that's oh, fu- I love Beth Rivka Ladies <laughs> College. That's so awesome. So in Australia, first grade gets called Beth Rivka Ladies College? The whole school. Right. But I mean, like there are first graders who attend a ladies college. Absolutely. And they <laughs> remind you of it. You know, you're an ambassador of Beth Rivka Ladies College. So I was in grade one and, you know, throughout the year we would have a hot dog day and your mom would send you to school with $2 for things like that. Uh, but it was, this was popcorn day and popcorn cost 50 cents and I hadn't brought any money with me. I'd forgotten or I was too shy to ask my mum because already at that age I had an intense amount of food shame. And I remember it was recess, so the classroom was empty and I knew there was a girl in my class who in her desk kept a little Tupperware container with coins in it and that was her tzedaka money because every morning we would begin with prayer, you know, davening. But before prayer, we would sing a tzedaka song, a little charity song, and someone would go around the classroom with a with a charity box and we'd all sing a song and everyone would put their coin in. My mum would send me to school with a five cent piece if I remember to ask. I also had those little kangaroo sneakers, had a little, little zippy pouch on the side of the sneaker. <laughs> and I remember at the shoe store being like, oh, that zippy pouch, that's for tzedaka. <laughs> so I didn't have any money with me, but I knew she had a little stash and... I wasn't a kid who stole, but I just really wanted popcorn, I guess. And I went into her desk and I took 50 cents and I went and bought myself popcorn. And it's funny, I don't remember eating the popcorn. I can't imagine that I enjoyed it. It was just like the guilt and like, oh my God, I stole something. And I thought about this for a long time and I 
really felt too guilty to say anything. And then finally, as an adult, I thought, you know, at this point, it's funny. At this point, she's not going to be hurt or mad at me, but I do still feel really crappy about it. And I do want to say something. So I sent her a Facebook message. We were sort of still loosely in touch. And I told her the whole story. And she she wrote like, LOL, you've already apologized for this before. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just funny because I had already apologized for it, I guess, but I'd, I'd forgotten that I apologized because I still felt so kind of ashamed of the whole thing. And it's funny, we were talking about this story in the tablet meeting and I started to write kind of a comic listing all these different apologies. And when I wrote about that one, I thought, you know, if I'm still feeling so ashamed of this, maybe I should also say sorry to myself. <laughs> you know, you beat yourself up and it's like, I was a kid. I said sorry. I knew what I did. I never did anything like that ever again. There was no reason to torture myself for decades after that. That's like the perfect example of forgiving yourself. Like I, I lived in San Francisco for a long time, and people there are really eager to forgive themselves all the time. And sometimes they should not forgive themselves. Sometimes so they quickly. should be a little bit harder on right. themselves. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And and I went to so many um, high holiday services where the sermon was about forgiving yourself. I'm Ooh. really not sure that that's what this holiday is about. It's like being but kinder you, to yourself. You know, Esther gets to forgive herself. I don't let That's... myself off the hook that often. Right. And I recognize it, you know, it was like, why am I still so ashamed of this story? You know, it was like stealing money, stealing money for food. It was like horrifying to me. Stealing tzedakah, charity money for Oh my for God. Food. Right. I wanted to know from both of you, is there anyone you'd like, any apologies you'd like to make now? I did a whole horrible thing a couple of months ago like I'm you're gonna watch me actually physically turn red as I tell you this story right now Uh, an acquaintance is was moving to another town and I meant to write to a friend in the town that she's moving to to say oh this person is coming Um, and I said you know she's so smart and she shares some interest with you but then I said but she's really precious and annoying don't tell me you sent it to her by accident. I sent it to her by accident. Oh. And I saw it go, and I heard the whoosh. whoosh. And it was like, oh. But literally the minute it was gone, I wrote to her saying, I just wrote back what can saying, you say? oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I have no excuse. Because I didn't. What could I say? And she wrote back sort of this, immediately she wrote back this sort of LOL Um you know, and I did apologize to her personally, but I still, I'm mortified, you know, and it was, you know, in our tradition, we talk about um, Lashon Hara. Speaking um, evil, speaking the, the evil, evil tongue. The evil tongue. And, you know, that was a perfect example of, I didn't need to say that. You know, she could have figured out, my friend could have figured out on her own that the girl was precious and annoying. Um, I could have just said, you know, this person shares your interests. She's moving to a new place. She doesn't know people. Be nice. And I didn't do that. I once had someone apologize to me for having said mean things about me behind my back, and I didn't know he'd said them. And it felt awful. I thought, yeah. really? Why? I wish you hadn't apologized. That was an example of what you said earlier about somebody doing, you know, that, that isn't about great. that. Yeah, that isn't about you. That so isn't you about say, your needs. So Marjorie Engel, you say don't make that apology. No. For gossiping about someone if they didn't know about it. No, that's that's stupid, Mark. <laughs> Just stupid. <laughs> Esther, anyone you want to apologize to? No. No. I, I, I have one. Yes. Um, So in a book I wrote a number of years ago, I referred to a particular rabbi as very short. And wait, it's worse. I wanted to make clear how short he was 
because it seemed a salient thing. Like he, he's a short, he wasn't five, six or five. I'm short, but he was quite diminutive. And I wanted to get my facts right. So in fact checking, I wrote to him and said, I'm going to call you short. I was like, in, I was in my like, I'm going to be a New Yorker writer someday phase. And I, I like facts matter more than facts matter, not people's feelings. And I wrote to him and I said, Rabbi, I just want you to know I'm going to refer to you with various descriptors, you know, wise and kind, but I'm also going to mention your height. How tall are you? And he wrote back and he said, I'm 5'3". And I put that in the book. And about a year later, I had this reckoning. I had just this thought. I thought that was about the cruelest thing you could do to someone. Why on earth did I do that? And I've not apologized to him. I Honestly, Mark, I don't think that's so bad. Really? I don't. Like, maybe he's, maybe he's apo- cool with being if short? If somebody would apologize, you know, he knows he's short. If somebody called me fat, I know I'm fat. You know, like it's it. If the aim of it was to be like, you know, look at this person with no authority and no power, and like the shortness was a symptom of some moral failing, then you would have something to apologize for. But if it was just a descriptor, so we have a visual for this guy, I'm, I'm, I feel like okay. you're off the hook. We're gonna let this one slide, Mark. Oh, thank God. One less thing to cry about in shul. Well. <laughs> Next year, when we do the show again, I'll fill you in on what I did or didn't do. Next year, we should talk about all the apologies that we think people owe to us. Yes, <laughs> I love it. Got lots of them, too. Now that's a fun show. Marjorie Ingle, co-author of SorryWatch.com. Esther Werdiger, art director of Tablet Magazine. Thank you both for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Mark. If you have thoughts on this special episode of Unorthodox, send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet and part of the Panoply Podcast Network. And thanks to all those who helped pull this episode together. Julie Subrin, Sarah Ivry, Alana Newhouse, the gang at Tablet, Henry, Laura, Sarah, Ava, the whole gang at Panoply. And thanks to all those who will be forgiving us this Yom Kippur season. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.